Chapter fourteen of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter fourteen. Ride through the northeast part of Sussex and all across Kent from the Weald of Sussex to Dover. Worth, Sussex, Friday, twenty ninth August, eighteen twenty three. I have so often described the soil, and other matters appertaining to the country between the Wen and this place, that my readers will rejoice at being spared the repetition here. As to the harvest, however, I find that they were deluged here on Tuesday last, though we got but little, comparatively, at Kensington. Between Mitcham and Sutton they were making wheat ricks. The corn has not been injured here worth notice. Now and then an ear in the butts groan, and grown wheat is a sad thing you may almost as well be without wheat altogether. However, very little harm has been done here as yet. At Walton Heath I saw a man who had suffered most terribly from the game laws. He saw me going by, and came out to tell me his story, and a horrible story it is, as the public will find, when it shall come regularly and fully before them. Apropos of game-works, I asked who was the judge at the Somersetshire Assizes the other day. A correspondent tells me that it was Judge Borough, I am well aware that, as this correspondent observes, gamekeepers ought not to be shot at. This is not the point. It is not a gamekeeper in the usual sense of that word. It is a man seizing another without a warrant. That is what it is, and this and old Ellenborough's Act are new things in England, and things of which the laws of England, the birthright of Englishmen, knew nothing. Yet Farmer Vogue ought not to have shot at the gamekeeper or Caesar without warrant. He ought not to have shot at him and he would not, had it not been for the law, that put him in danger of being transported on the evidence of this man, so that it is clearly the terrible law that, in these cases, produces the violence. Yet admire with me, reader, the singular turn of the mind of Sir James Mackintosh, whose whole soul appears to have been long bent on the amelioration of the penal code, and who has never said one single word about this new and most terrible part of it. Sir James, after years of incessant toil, has, I believe, succeeded in getting a repeal of the laws for the punishment of witchcraft, of the very existence of which laws the nation was unacquainted. But the devil a word has he said about the game laws, which put into the jails a full third part of the prisoners, and to hold which prisoners the jails have actually been enlarged in all parts of the country. Singular turn of mind! Singular humanity! Ah! Sir James knows very well what he is at. He understands the state of his constituents at Narisborough, too well to meddle with game-laws. He has a friend, I dare say, who knows more about game-laws than he does. However, the poor witches are safe. Thanks, Sir James, for that. Mr. Carlyle's sister and Mrs. Wright are in jail, and may be there for life, but the poor witches are safe. No hypocrite, no base pretender to religion, no atrocious, savage, black-hearted wretch who would murder half mankind rather than not live on the labours of others, no monster of this kind can now persecute the poor witches, thanks to Sir James, who has obtained security for them in all their rides through the air, and in all their sailings upon the horse-ponds. Tunbridge Wells, Kent, Saturday, 30th August. I came from Worth about seven this morning, passed through East Grinstead, over Holt High Common, through Ashurst, and thence to this place. The morning was very fine, and I left them at Worth, making a wheat-rick. There was no show for rain till about one o'clock, as I was approaching Ashurst. The shattering that came at first I thought nothing of, but the clouds soon grew up all round, and the rain set in for the afternoon. The buildings at Ashurst, which is the first parish in Kent on quitting Sussex, are a mill, an alehouse, a church, and about six or seven other houses. I stopped at the alehouse to bait my horse, and for want of bacon was compelled to put up with bread and cheese for myself. I waited in vain for the rain to cease or to slacken, and the want of bacon made me fear as to a bed. So about five o'clock I, without greatcoat, got upon my horse and came to this place, just as fast and no faster than if it had been fine weather. A very fine soaking. If the South Downs have left any little remnant of the hooping cough, this will take it away to be sure. I made not the least haste to get out of the rain. I stopped here and there, as usual, and asked questions about the corn, the hops, and other things. But the moment I got in I got a good fire, and set about the work of drying in good earnest. 
it costing me nothing for drink i can afford to have plenty of fire i have not been in the house an hour and all my clothes are now as dry as if they had never been wet it is not getting wet that hurts you if you keep moving while you are wet it is the suffering of yourself to be inactive while the wet clothes are on your back the country that i have come over to-day is a very pretty one the soil is a pale yellow loam looking like brick earth but rather sandy but the bottom is a softish stone now and then where you go through hollow ways as at east grinstead the sides are solid rock and indeed the rocks sometimes on the sides of hills show themselves above ground and mixed amongst the woods make very interesting objects on the road from the wen to brighton through godston and over turner's hill and which road i crossed this morning in coming from worth to east grinstead on that road which goes through linfield and which is by far the pleasantest coach road from the wen to brighton on the side of this road on which coaches now go from the wen to brighton there is a long chain of rocks or rather rocky hills with trees growing amongst the rocks or apparently out of them as they do in the woods near ross in herefordshire and as they do in the blue mountains in america where you can see no earth at all where all seems rock and yet where the trees grow most beautifully at the place of which i am now speaking that is to say by the side of this pleasant road to brighton and between turner's hill and linfield there is a rock which they call big upon little that is to say a rock upon another having nothing else to rest upon and the top one being longer and wider than the top of the one it lies on this big rock is no trifling concern being as big perhaps as a not very small house how then came this big upon little what lifted up the big it balances itself naturally enough but what tossed it up i do not like to pay a parson for teaching me while i have god's own word to teach me but if any parson will tell me how big came upon little i do not know that i shall grudge him a trifle and if he cannot tell me this if he say all that we have to do is to admire and adore then i tell him that i can admire and adore without his aid and that i will keep my money in my pocket to return to the soil of this country it is such a loam as i have described with this stone beneath sometimes the top soil is lighter and sometimes heavier sometimes the stone is harder and sometimes softer but this is the general character of it all the way from worth to tunbridge wells this land is what may be called the middle kind the wheat crop about twenty to twenty four bushels to an acre on an average of years the grass fields not bad and all the fields will grow grass i mean make upland meadows the woods good though not of the finest the land seems to be about thus divided three-tenths woods two-tenths grass a tenth of a tenth hops and the rest corn-land these make very pretty surface especially as it is a rarity to see a pollard tree and as nobody is so beastly as to trim trees up like the elms near the wen the country has no flat spot in it yet the hills are not high my road was a gentle rise or a gentle descent all the way continual new views strike the eye but there is little variety in them all is pretty but nothing strikingly beautiful the labouring people look pretty well they have pigs they invariably do best in the woodland and forest and wild countries where the mighty grasper has all under his eye they can get but little these are cross-roads mere parish roads but they are very good while i was at the alehouse at ashurst i heard some labouring men talking about the roads and they having observed that the parish roads had become so wonderfully better within the last seven or eight years i put in my word and said it is odd enough too that the parish roads should become better and better as the farmers become poorer and poorer they looked at one another and put on a sort of expecting look for my observation seemed to ask for information at last one of them said why it is because the farmers have not the money to employ men and so they are put on the roads yes said i but they must pay them there they said no more and only looked hard at one another they had probably never thought about this before they seemed puzzled by it and well they might for it has bothered the wigs of boroughmongers parsons and lawyers and will bother them yet yet this country now contains a body of occupiers of the land who suffer the land to go to decay for want of means to pay a sufficiency of labourers and at the same time are compelled to pay those labourers for doing that which is of no use to the occupiers their collective wisdom go brag of that call that the envy of surrounding nations and the admiration of the world this is a great nut here i saw them hanging very thick on the wayside during a great part of this day's ride and they put me in mind of the old saying that a great nut here is a great year for that class whom the lawyers in their latin phrase 
called the sons and daughters of nobody. I once asked a farmer, who had often been overseer of the poor, whether he really thought that there was any ground for this old saying, or whether he thought it was mere banter. He said that he was sure that there were good grounds for it, and he even cited instances in proof, and mentioned one particular year when there were four times as many of this class as ever had been born in a year in the parish before, an effect which he ascribed solely to the crop of nuts of the year before. Now if this be the case, ought not Parson Malthus, Lawyer Scarlet, and the rest of that tribe, to turn their attention to the nut-trees? The vice-society, too, with that holy man Wilberforce at its head, ought to look out sharp after these mischievous nut-trees. A law to cause them all to be grubbed up and thrown into the fire would certainly be far less unreasonable than many things which we have seen and heard of. The corn from Worth to this place is pretty good. The farmers say it is a small crop. Other people, and especially the labourers, say that it is a good crop. I think it is not large and not small. About an average crop, perhaps rather less, for the land is rather light, and this is not a year for light lands. But there is no blight, no mildew, in spite of all the prayers of the loyal. The wheat about a third cut, and none carried. No other corn begun upon. Hops very bad till I came within a few miles of this place, when I saw some which I should suppose would bear about six hundred weight to the acre. The orchards, no great things along here. Some apples here and there, but small and stunted. I do not know that I have seen to-day any one tree well loaded with fine apples. Tenterden, Kent, Sunday, 31st August. Here I am, after a most delightful ride of twenty-four miles, through Frant, Lamberhurst, Goodhurst, Milkhouse Street, Benenden, and Rolvenden. By making a great stir in rousing waiters and boots and maids, and by leaving behind me the name of a damned, noisy, troublesome fellow, I got clear of the wells and out of the contagion of its wind-engendered inhabitants, time enough to meet the first rays of the sun, on the hill that you come up in order to get to Frant, which is a most beautiful little village at about two miles from the wells. Here the land belongs, I suppose, to Lord Abergavenny, who has a mansion and park here. A very pretty place, and kept seemingly in very nice order. I saw here what I never saw before, the bloom of the common heath we wholly overlook. But it is a very pretty thing, and here, when the plantations were made, and as they grew up, heath was left to grow on the sides of the roads in the plantations. The heath is not so much of a dwarf as we suppose. This is four feet high, and being in full bloom, it makes the prettiest border that can be imagined. This place of Lord Abergavenny is altogether a very pretty place, and so far from grudging him the possession of it, I should feel pleasure at seeing it in his possession, and should pray God to preserve it to him, and from the unholy and ruthless touch of the Jews and jobbers. But I cannot forget this Lord Sinecure. I cannot forget that he has, for doing nothing, received of the public money more than sufficient to buy such an estate as this. I cannot forget that this estate may, perhaps, have actually been bought with that money. Not being able to forget this, and with my mind filled with reflections of this sort, I got up to the church at Frant, and just by I saw a schoolhouse with this motto on it, Train up a child as he should walk, etc. That is to say, try to breed up the boys and girls of this village, in such a way that they may never know anything about Lord Abergavenny's sinecure, or knowing about it, that they may think it right that he should roll in wealth coming to him in such a way. The projectors deceive nobody but themselves. They are working for the destruction of their own system. In looking back over the wells, I cannot but admire the operation of the gambling system. This little toadstool is a thing created entirely by the gamble, and the means have hitherto come out of the wages of labour. These means are now coming out of the farmer's capital, and out of the landlord's estate. The labourers are stripped. They can give no more. The saddle is now fixing itself upon the right back. In quitting Frant, I descended into a country more woody than that behind me. I asked a man whose fine woods those were that I pointed to, and I fairly gave a start when he said the Marquis Camden's. Milton talks of the Leviathan in a way to make one draw in one's shoulders with fear, and I appeal to any one who has been at sea when a whale has come near the ship, whether he has not, at the first sight of the monster, made a sort of involuntary movement, as if to get out of the way. Such was the movement that I now made. However, soon coming to myself, on I walked my horse by the side of my pedestrian informant. It is Bayham Abbey that this great and awful sinecure placeman owns in this part of the county. Another great estate he owns near Sevenoaks. But here alone he spreads his length and breadth over more, they say, than ten or twelve thousand acres of land, great part of which consists of oak woods. 
but indeed what estates might he not purchase not much less than thirty years he held a place a sinecure place that yielded him about thirty thousand pounds a year at any rate he according to parliamentary accounts has received of public money little short of a million of guineas these at thirty guineas an acre would buy thirty thousand acres of land and what did he have all this money for answer me that question wilberforce you who called him a bright star when he gave up a part of his enormous sinecure he gave up all but the trifling sum of nearly three thousand pounds a year what a bright star and when did he give it up when the radical had made the country ring with it when his name was by their means getting into every mouth in the kingdom when every radical speech and petition contained the name of camden then it was and not till then that this bright star let fall part of its brilliancy so that wilberforce ought to have thanked the radicals and not camden when he let go his grasp he talked of the merits of his father his father was a lawyer who was exceedingly well paid for what he did without a million of money being given to his son but there is something rather out of commonplace to be observed about this father this father was the contemporary of york who became lord hardwick pratt and york and the merit of pratt was that he was constantly opposed to the principles of york york was called a tory and pratt a whig but the devil of it was both got to be lords and in one shape or another the families of both have from that day to this been receiving great parcels of the public money beautiful system the tories were for rewarding york the whigs were for rewarding pratt the ministers all in good time humoured both parties and the stupid people divided into tools of two factions actually applauded now one part of them and now the other part of them the squandering away of their substance they were like the man and his wife in the fable who despite one another gave away to the cunning mumper the whole of their dinner bit by bit this species of folly is over at any rate the people are no longer fools enough to be partisans they make no distinctions the nonsense about court party and country party is at an end who thinks anything more of the name of erskine than of that of scott as the people told the two factions at maidstone when they with camden at their head met to congratulate the regent on the marriage of his daughter they are all tarred with the same brush and tarred with the same brush they must be until there be a real reform of the parliament however the people are no longer deceived they are not duped they know that the thing is that which it is the people of the present day would laugh at disputes carried on with so much gravity about the principles of pratt and the principles of york you are all tarred with the same brush said the sensible people of maidstone and in those words they expressed the opinion of the whole country boroughmongers and tax-eaters excepted the country from fran to lamberhurst is very woody i should think five-tenths woods and three grass the corn what there is of it is about the same as further back i saw a hop-garden just before i got to lamberhurst which will have about two or three hundred weight to the acre this lamberhurst is a very pretty place it lies in a valley with beautiful hills round it the pastures about here are very fine and the roads are as smooth and as handsome as those in windsor park from the last mentioned place i had three miles to come to goodhurst the tower of the church of which is pretty lofty of itself and the church stands upon the very summit of one of the steepest and highest hills in this part of the country the churchyard has a view of about twenty-five miles in diameter and the whole is over a very fine country though the character of the country differs little from that which i have before described before i got to goodhurst i passed by the side of a village called horsenden and saw some very large hop-grounds away to my right i should suppose there were fifty acres and they appeared to me to look pretty well i found that they belonged to mr springate and people say that it will grow half as many hops as he grew last year while people in general will not grow a tenth part so many this hop-growing and dealing have always been a gamble and this puts me in mind of the horrible treatment which mr waddington received on account of what was called his forestalling in hops it is useless to talk as long as that gentleman remains uncompensated for his sufferings there can be no hope of better days ellenborough was his counsel he afterwards became judge but nothing was ever done to undo what kenyon had done however mr waddington will i trust yet live to obtain justice he has in the meanwhile given the thing now and then a blow and he has the satisfaction to see it reel about like a drunken man i got to goodhurst to breakfast and as i heard that the dean of rochester was to preach a sermon in behalf of the national schools i stopped to hear him in waiting for his reverence i went to the methodist meeting-house where i found the sunday-school boys and girls assembled to the almost filling of the place 
which was about thirty feet long and eighteen wide. The minister was not come, and the schoolmaster was reading to the children out of a tract book, and shaking the brimstone bag at them most furiously. This schoolmaster was a sleek-looking young fellow, his skin perfectly tight, well fed, I'll warrant him, and he has discovered the way of living without work, on the labour of those that do work. There were thirty-six little fellows in smock-frocks, and about as many girls listening to him, and I dare say he eats as much meat as any ten of them. By this time the dean, I thought, would be coming on, and therefore to the church I went. But to my great disappointment I found that the parson was operating, preparatory to the appearance of the dean, who was to come on in the afternoon, when I, agreeably to my plan, must be off. The sermon was from 2 Chronicles, chapter 31, verse 21, and the words of this text describe King Hezekiah as a most zealous man, doing whatever he did with all his heart. I write from memory, mind, and therefore I do not pretend to quote exact words, and I may be a little in error, perhaps, as to chapter or verse. The object of the preacher was to hold up to his hearers the example of Hezekiah, and particularly in the case of the school affair. He called upon them to subscribe with all their hearts. But, alas, how little of persuasive power was there in what he said! No effort to make them see the use of the schools. No inducement proved to exist. No argument, in short, nor anything to move. No appeal either to the reason or to the feeling. All was general, commonplace, cold observation, and that too in language which the far greater part of the hearers could not understand. This church is about a hundred and ten feet long and seventy feet wide in the clear. It would hold three thousand people, and it had in it two hundred and fourteen, besides fifty-three Sunday school or national school boys. And these sat together in a sort of lodge up in a corner, sixteen feet long and ten feet wide. Now, will any Parson Malthus or anybody else have the impudence to tell me that this church was built for the use of a population not more numerous than the present? To be sure, when this church was built, there could be no idea of a Methodist meeting coming to assist the church, and as little, I dare say, was it expected that the preachers in the church would ever call upon the faithful to subscribe money to be sent up to one Joshua Watson, living in a wen, to be by him laid out in promoting Christian knowledge. But at any rate the Methodists cannot take away above four or five hundred, and what then was this great church built for, if there were no more people in those days at Goodhurst than there are now? It is very true that the labouring people have, in a great measure, ceased to go to church. There were scarcely any of that class at this great country church to-day. I do not believe there were ten. I can remember when they were so numerous that the parson could not attempt to begin, till the rattling of their nailed shoes ceased. I have seen, I am sure, five hundred boys and men in smock-frocks coming out of church at one time. To-day has been a fine day. There would have been many at church to-day, if ever there are. And here I have another to add to the many things that convince me that the labouring classes have in great part ceased to go to church, that their way of thinking and feeling with regard to both church and clergy are totally changed, and that there is now very little moral hold which the latter possess. This preaching for money to support the schools is a most curious affair altogether. The king sends a circular letter to the bishops, as I understand it, to cause subscriptions for the schools, and the bishops, if I am rightly told, tell the parish clergy to send the money when collected to Joshua Watson, the treasurer of a society in the Wen, for promoting Christian knowledge. What? The church and all its clergy put into motion to get money from the people to send up to one Joshua Watson, a wine merchant, or later wine merchant, in Mincing Lane, Fenchurch Street, London, in order that the said wine merchant may apply the money to the promoting of Christian knowledge? What? All the deacons, priests, curates, perpetual, vicars, rectors, prebends, doctors, deans, archdeacons, and fathers in God, right reverend and most reverend, all, yea, all, engage in getting money together to send to a wine merchant, that he may lay it out in the promoting of Christian knowledge in their own flocks. Oh, brave wine merchant! What a prince of godliness must this wine merchant be! I say wine merchant, or late wine merchant, of Mincing Lane, Fenchurch Street, London, and for God's sake some good parson do send me up a copy of the King's Circular, and also of the Bishop's order to send the money to Joshua Watson, for some precious sport we will have with Joshua and his society before we have done with them. After service I mounted my horse and jogged on through Milkhouse Street to Benenden, where I passed through the estate and in sight of the house of Mr. Hodges. He keeps it very neat and has planted a good deal. His ash do very well, but the chestnut do not, as it seems to me. He ought to have the American chestnut, if he have any. If I could discover an everlasting hop-pole, and one, too, that would grow faster even than the ash, would not these Kentish hop-planters put me in the calendar 
along with their famous St. Thomas of Canterbury. We shall see this one of these days. Coming through the village of Benenden, I heard a man at my right talking very loud about houses, houses, houses. It was a Methodist parson in a house close by the roadside. I pulled up and stood still in the middle of the road, but looking, in silent soberness, into the window, which was open, of the room in which the preacher was at work. I believe my stopping rather disconcerted him, for he got into shocking repetition. "'Do you know,' said he, laying great stress on the word no, "'do you know that you have ready for you houses? Houses, I say, I say, do you know? Do you know that you have houses in the heavens, not made with hands? Do you know this from experience? Has the blessed Jesus told you so?' and on he went to say that if Jesus had told them so, they would be saved, and that if he had not, and did not, they would be damned. Some girls whom I saw in the room, plump and rosy as could be, did not seem at all daunted by these menaces, and indeed they appeared to me to be thinking much more about getting houses for themselves in this world first, just to see a little before they entered, or endeavoured to enter, or even thought much about those houses of which the parson was speaking, houses with pigsties and little snug gardens attached to them, together with all the other domestic and conjugal circumstances, these girls seem to me to be preparing themselves for. The truth is, these fellows have no powers on the minds of any but the miserable. Scarcely had I proceeded a hundred yards from the place where this fellow was bawling, when I came to the very situation which he ought to have occupied, I mean the stocks, which the people of Benenden have, with singular humanity, fitted up with a bench, so that the patient, while he is receiving the benefit of the remedy, is not exposed to the danger of catching cold by sitting, as in other places, upon the ground, always damp and sometimes actually wet. But I would ask the people of Benenden what is the use of this humane precaution, and indeed what is the use of the stocks themselves if, while a fellow is ranting and bawling in the manner just described, at the distance of a hundred yards from the stocks, the stocks, as is here actually the case, are almost hidden by grass and nettles. This, however, is the case all over the country not nettles and grass indeed smothering the stocks, but I never see any feet peeping through the holes anywhere, though I find Methodist parsons everywhere, and though the law compels the parishes to keep up all the pairs of stocks that exist in all parts of them, and in some parishes they have to keep up several pairs. I am aware that a good part of the use of the stocks is the terror they ought to produce. I am not supposing that they are of no use, because not continually furnished with legs, but there is a wide difference between always and never, and it is clear that a fellow who has had the stocks under his eye all his lifetime, and has never seen a pair of feet peeping through them, will stand no more in awe of the stocks than rooks do of an old shoyhoy, or than the ministers or their agents do of Hobhouse and Burdett. Stocks that never pinch a pair of ankles are like ministerial responsibility, a thing to talk about but for no other use, a mere mockery, a thing laughed at by those whom it is intended to keep in check. It is time that the stocks were again in use, or that the expense of keeping them up were put an end to. This mild, this gentle, this good-humoured sort of correction is not enough for our present rulers. But mark the consequence. Jails ten times as big as formerly, houses of correction, treadmills, the hulks, and the country filled with spies of one sort and another, game-spies or other spies, and if a hare or pheasant come to an untimely death, police officers from the wen are not unfrequently called down to find out and secure the bloody offender. Mark this, Englishman, mark how we take to those things which we formerly ridiculed in the French, and take them up to just as that brave and spirited people have shaken them off. I saw not long ago an account of a Wen police officer being sent into the country, where he assumed a disguise, joined some poachers, as they are called, got into their secrets, went out in the night with them, and then, having laid his plans with the game people, assisted to take them and convict them. What, is this England?' Is this the land of manly hearts? Is this the country that laughed at the French for their submissions? What are police officers kept for this? Does the law say so? However, thank God Almighty, the estates are passing away into the hands of those who have had borrowed from them the money to uphold this monster of a system. The debt, the blessed debt, will at last restore to us freedom. Just after I quitted Benenden, I saw some bunches of straw lying upon the quickset hedge of a cottage garden. I found upon inquiry that they were bunches of the straw of grass. Seeing a face through the window of the cottage, I called out, and asked what the straw was for. The person within said it was to make leghorn plat with. I asked him, it was a young man, how he knew how to do it. He said he had got a little book that had been made by Mr. Cobbett. I told him that I was the man, and should like to see some of his work, and asked him to bring it out to me, I being afraid to tie my horse. 
He told me that he was a cripple, and that he could not come out. At last I went in, leaving my horse to be held by a little girl. I found a young man who has been a cripple for fourteen years. Some ladies in the neighbourhood had got him the book, and his family had got him the grass. He had made some very nice plan, and he had knitted the greater part of the crown of a bonnet, and had done the whole very nicely, though, as to the knitting, he had proceeded in a way to make it very tedious. He was knitting upon a block. However, these little matters will soon be set to rights. There will soon be persons to teach knitting in all parts of the country. I left this unfortunate young man with the pleasing reflection that I had in all likelihood been the cause of his gaining a good living by his labour during the rest of his life. How long will it be before my calumniators, the false and infamous London press, will, take the whole of it together and leave out its evil, do as much good as my pen has done in this one instance? How long will it be ere the ruffians, the base hirelings, the infamous traders, who own and who conduct that press, how long ere one of them, or all of them together, shall cause a cottage to smile, shall add one ounce to the meal of the labouring man? Rolvenden was my next village, and thence I could see the lofty church of Tenterden on the top of a hill at three miles' distance. This Rolvenden is a very beautiful village, and, indeed, such are all the places along here. These villages are not like those in the iron counties, as I call them, that is, the counties of Flint and Chalk. Here the houses have gardens in front of them, as well as behind, and there is a good deal of show and finery about them and their gardens. The high roads are without a stone in them, and everything looks like gentility. At this place I saw several arbutuses in one garden, and much finer than we see them in general, though mind this is no proof of a mild climate, for the arbutus is a native of one much colder than that of England, and indeed than that of Scotland. Coming from Benedon to Rolvenden I saw some Swedish turnips, and strange as the reader will think it, the first I saw after leaving Worth. The reason I take to be this, the farms are all furnished with grass-fields as in Devonshire about Honiton. These grass-fields give hay for the sheep and cattle in winter, or at any rate they do all that is not done by the white turnips. It may be a question whether it would be more profitable to break up and sow Swedes, but this is the reason of their not being cultivated along here. White turnips are more easily got than Swedes, they may be sown later, and with good hay they will fat cattle and sheep, but the Swedes will do this business without hay. In Norfolk and Suffolk the land is not generally of a nature to make hay-fields, therefore the people there resort to Swedes. This has been a sad time for these hay-farmers, however, all along here. They have but just finished hay-making, and I see all along my way from East Grinstead to this place, hay-ricks the colour of dirt, and smoking like dung-heaps. Just before I got to this place, Tenterden, I crossed a bit of marshland which I found upon inquiry, is a sort of little branch or spray, running out of that immense and famous tract of country, called Romney Marsh, which, I find, I have to cross to-morrow, in order to get to Dover, along by the seaside, through Hythe and Folkestone. This Tenterden is a market-town, and a singularly bright spot. It consists of one street, which is, in some places, more, perhaps, than two hundred feet wide. On one side of the street the houses have gardens before them, from twenty to seventy feet deep. The town is upon a hill, the afternoon was very fine, and just as I rose the hill and entered the street, the people had come out of church and were moving along towards their houses. It was a very fine sight. Shabbily dressed people do not go to church. I saw, in short, drawn out before me the dress and beauty of the town, and a great many very, very pretty girls I saw, and saw them too in their best attire. I remember the girls in the Pays de Caux, and really I think those of Tenterden resemble them. I do not know why they should not, for there is the Pays de Caux only just over the water, just opposite this very place. The hops about here are not so very bad. They say that one man near this town will have eight tons of hops upon ten acres of land. This is a great crop any year, a very great crop. This man may perhaps sell his hops for sixteen hundred pounds. What a gambling concern it is! However, such hop-growing always was, and always must be. It is a thing of perfect hazard. The church at this place is a very large and fine old building. The tower stands upon a base thirty feet square. Like the church at Goodhurst, it will hold three thousand people. And let it be observed that when these churches were built, people had not yet thought of cramming them with pews, as a stable is filled with stalls. Those who built these churches had no idea that worshipping God meant going to sit to hear a man talk out what he called preaching. By worship they meant very different things, and above all things, when they had made a fine and noble building, they did not dream of disfiguring the inside of it by filling its floor with large and deep boxes made of deal boards. In short, the floor was the place for the worshippers to stand or to kneel, 
and there was no distinction, no high place and no low place. All were upon a level before God, at any rate. Some were not stuck into pews lined with green or red cloth, while others were crammed into corners to stand erect or sit on the floor. These odious distinctions are of Protestant origin and growth. This lazy lolling in pews we owe to what is called the Reformation. A place filled with benches and boxes looks like an eating or a drinking place, but certainly not like a place of worship. A Frenchman who had been driven from St. Domingo to Philadelphia by the Wilberforces of France went to church along with me one Sunday. He had never been in a Protestant place of worship before. Upon looking round him and seeing everybody comfortably seated, while a couple of good stoves were keeping the place as warm as a slack oven, he exclaimed, Pardi, on Sir dear bien à sonnez ici. That is egad. They serve God very much at their ease here. I always think of this when I see a church full of pews, as, indeed, is now always the case with our churches. Those who built these churches had no idea of this. They made their calculations as to the people to be contained in them, not making any allowance for deal boards. I often wonder how it is that the present parsons are not ashamed to call the churches theirs. They must know the origin of them, and how they can look at them and at the same time revile the Catholics is astonishing to me. This evening I have been to the Methodist meeting-house. I was attracted, fairly drawn all down the street, by the singing. When I came to the place the parson was got into prayer. His hands were clenched together and held up his face turned up and back so as to be nearly parallel with the ceiling, and he was bawling away with his do thou and mayest thou and may be, enough to stun one. Noisy, however, as he was, he was unable to fix the attention of a parcel of girls in the gallery, whose eyes were all over the place, while his eyes were so devoutly shut up. After a deal of this rigmarole called prayer came the preachy, as the negroes call it, and a preachy it really was. Such a mixture of whining cant and of foppish affectation I scarcely ever heard in my life. The text was, I speak from memory, one of St. Peter's epistles, if he have more than one, the fourth chapter and eighteenth verse. The words were to this amount, that, as the righteous would be saved with difficulty, what must become of the ungodly and the sinner? After as neat a dish of nonsense and of impertinences as one could wish to have served up, came the distinction between the ungodly and the sinner. The sinner was one who did moral wrong, the ungodly one who did no moral wrong, but who was not regenerated. Both, he positively told us, were to be damned. One was just as bad as the other. Moral rectitude was to do nothing in saving the man. He was to be damned unless born again. And how was he to be born again unless he came to the regeneration shop and gave the fellows money? He distinctly told us that a man perfectly moral might be damned, and that the vilest of the vile and the basest of the base, I quote his very words, would be saved if they became regenerate and that colliers, whose souls had been as black as their coals, had by regeneration become bright as the saints that sing before God and the Lamb. And will the Edinburgh reviewers again find fault with me for cutting at this bawling, canting crew? Monstrous it is to think that the clergy of the church really encourage these roving fanatics. The church seems aware of its loss of credit and of power. It seems willing to lean even upon these men who, be it observed, seem on their part to have taken the church under their protection." They always pray for the ministry, I mean the ministry at Whitehall. They are most loyal souls. The thing protects them, and they lend their aid in upholding the thing. What silly, nay, what base creatures those must be who really give their money, give their pennies which ought to buy bread for their own children, who thus give their money to these lazy and impudent fellows, who call themselves ministers of God, who prowl about the country living easy and jovial lives upon the fruit of the labour of other people. However, it is in some measure these people's fault. If they did not give, the others could not receive. I wish to see every labouring man well fed and well clad. But really the man who gives any portion of his earnings to these fellows deserves to want. He deserves to be pinched with hunger. Misery is the just reward of this worst species of prodigality. The singing makes a great part of what passes in these meeting-houses. A number of women and girls singing together make very sweet sounds. Few men there are who have not felt the power of sounds of this sort. Men are sometimes pretty nearly bewitched without knowing how. Eyes do a good deal, but tongues do more. We may talk of sparkling eyes and snowy bosoms as long as we please, but what are these with a croaking masculine voice? The parson seemed to be fully aware of the importance of this part of the service. The subject of his hymn was something about love, Christian love, love of Jesus, but still it was about love, and the parson read or gave out the verses in a singularly soft and sighing voice, with his head on one side and giving it rather a swing. 
I am satisfied that the singing forms great part of the attraction. Young girls like to sing, and young men like to hear them. Nay, old ones, too. And as I have just said, it was the singing that drew me three hundred yards down the street at Tenterden to enter this meeting-house. By the by, I wrote some hymns myself and published them in Tuppenny Trash. I will give any Methodist parson leave to put them into his hymn-book. Folkestone, Kent, Monday noon, 1st September. I have had a fine ride, and I suppose the Quakers have had a fine time of it at Mark Lane. From Tenterden I set off at five o'clock, and got to Appledore after a most delightful ride, the high land upon my right, and the low land on my left. The fog was so thick and white along some of the low land, that I should have taken it for water, if little hills and trees had not risen up through it here and there. Indeed the view was very much like those which are presented in the deep valleys near the great rivers in New Brunswick, North America, at the time when the snows melt in the spring, and when, in sailing over those valleys, you look down from the side of your canoe, and see the lofty woods beneath you. I once went in a log canoe across a sylvan sea of this description, the canoe being paddled by two Yankees. We started in a stream, and the stream became a wide water, and that water got deeper and deeper, as I could see by the trees, all was woods, till we got to sail amongst the top branches of the trees. By and by we got into a large open space, a piece of water a mile or two, or three or four wide, with the woods under us. A fog with the tops of trees rising through it is very much like this, and such was the fog that I saw this morning in my ride to Appledore. The church at Appledore is very large, big enough to hold three thousand people, and the place does not seem to contain half a thousand old enough to go to church. In coming along I saw a wheat-trick making, though I hardly think the wheat can be dry under the bands. The corn is all good here, and I am told they give twelve shillings an acre for reaping wheat. In quitting this apple-door I crossed a canal and entered on Romney Marsh. This was grassland on both sides of me to a great distance. The flocks and herds immense. The sheep are of a breed that takes its name from the marsh. They are called Romney Marsh sheep, very pretty and large. The weathers, when fat, weigh about twelve stone, or one hundred pounds. The faces of these sheep are white, and indeed the whole sheep is as white as a piece of writing-paper. The wool does not look dirty and oily like that of other sheep. The cattle appear to be all of the Sussex breed, red, loose-limbed, and they say a great deal better than the Devonshire. How curious is the natural economy of a country! The forests of Sussex, those miserable tracts of heath and fern and bushes and sand, called Ashdown Forest and St. Leonard's Forest, to which latter Lord Erskine's estate belongs, these wretched tracts and the not much less wretched farms in their neighbourhood breed the cattle which we see fatting in Romney Marsh. They are calved in the spring, they are weaned in a little bit of grassland, they are then put into stubbles and about in the fallows for the first summer. They are brought into the yard to winter on rough hay, peasholm, or barley straw, and the next two summers they spend in the rough woods or in the forest. The two winters they live on straw, they then pass another summer on the forest or at work, and then they come here or go elsewhere to be fatted. With cattle of this kind and with sheep such as I have spoken of before, this marsh abounds in every part of it and the sight is most beautiful. At three miles from Appledore I came through Snargate, a village with five houses, and with a church capable of containing two thousand people. The vagabonds tell us, however, that we have a wonderful increase of population. These vagabonds will be hanged by and by, whilst justice will have fled from the face of the earth. At Brenzett, a mile further on, I with great difficulty got a rasher of bacon for breakfast. The few houses that there are are miserable in the extreme. The church here, only a mile from the last, nearly as large, and nobody to go to it. What, will the vagabonds attempt to make us believe that these churches were built for nothing? Dark ages indeed those must have been if these churches were erected, without there being any more people than there are now. But who built them? Where did the means, where did the hands come from? This place presents another proof of the truth of my old observation. Rich land and poor labourers. From the window of the house, in which I could scarcely get a rasher of bacon and not an egg, I saw numberless flocks and herds fatting, and the fields loaded with corn. The next village, which was two miles further on, was Old Romney, and along here I had, for great part of the way, cornfields on one side of me, and grassland on the other. I asked what the amount of the crop of wheat would be. They told me better than five quarters to the acre. I thought so myself. I have a sample of the red wheat and another of the white. They are both very fine. They reap the wheat here nearly two feet from the ground, and even then they cut it three feet long. I never saw corn like this before. It very far exceeds the corn under Portsdown Hill, that at Gosport and Titchfield. They have here about eight hundred large, very large sheaves to an acre. 
I wonder how long it will be after the end of the world before Mr. Burbeck will see the American prairies half so good as this marsh. In a garden here I saw some very fine onions, and a prodigious crop, sure sign of most excellent land. At this old Romney there is a church, two miles only from the last mind, fit to contain one thousand five hundred people, and there are, for the people of the parish to live in, twenty-two or twenty-three houses, and yet the vagabonds have the impudence to tell us that the population of England has vastly increased. Curious system that depopulates Romney Marsh and people's bagshot heath. It is an unnatural system. It is the vagabond system. It is a system that must be destroyed or that will destroy the country. The rotten borough of New Romney came next in my way, and here to my great surprise I found myself upon the sea beach, for I had not looked at a map of Kent for years, and perhaps never. I had got a list of places from a friend in Sussex, whom I asked to give me a route to Dover, and to send me through those parts of Kent which he thought would be most interesting to me. Never was I so much surprised as when I saw a sail. This place, now that the squanderings of the thing are over, is, they say, become miserably poor. From New Romney to Dimchurch is about four miles. All along I had the sea-beach on my right, and on my left, sometimes grassland and sometimes corn-land. They told me here, and also further back in the marsh, that they were to have fifteen shillings an acre for reaping wheat. From Dimchurch to Hythe you go on the sea-beach, and nearly the same from Hythe to Sandgate, from which last place you come over the hill to Folkestone. But let me look back. Here has been the squandering. Here has been the pauper-making work. Here we see some of these causes that are now sending some farmers to the workhouse, and driving others to flee the country or to cut their throats. I had baited my horse at New Romney, and was coming jogging along very soberly, now looking at the sea, then looking at the cattle, then the corn, when my eye in swinging round lighted upon a great round building, standing upon the beach. I had scarcely had time to think about what it could be when twenty or thirty others, standing along the coast, caught my eye, and if any one had been behind me he might have heard me exclaim, in a voice that made my horse bound, "'The Martello Towers by—oh, Lord!' To think that I should be destined to behold these monuments of the wisdom of Pitt and Dundas and Percival! Good God! Here they are, piles of bricks in a circular form, about three hundred feet, guess, circumference at the base, about forty feet high, and about one hundred and fifty feet circumference at the top. There is a doorway about midway up in each, and each has two windows. Cannons were to be fired from the top of these things, in order to defend the country against the French Jacobins. I think I have counted along here upwards of thirty of these ridiculous things, which I dare say cost five, perhaps ten thousand pounds each, and one of which I am told, sold on the coast of Sussex the other day, for two hundred pounds, there's, they say, a chain of these things all the way to Hastings. I dare say they cost millions. But far indeed are these from being all or half or a quarter of the squanderings along here. High this half barracks, the hills are covered with barracks, and barracks most expensive, most squandering, fill up the side of the hill. Here is a canal, I crossed it at Appledore, made for the length of thirty miles from Hythe in Kent to Rye in Sussex, to keep out the French, for those armies who had so often crossed the Rhine and the Danube were to be kept back by a canal made by pit thirty feet wide at the most. All along the coast there are works of some sort or other, incessant sinks of money, walls of immense dimensions, masses of stone brought and put into piles. Then you see some of the walls and buildings falling down, some that have never been finished. The whole thing all taken together looks as if a spell had been all of a sudden set upon the workmen, or in the words of the scripture, here is the desolation of abomination standing in high places. However, all is right. These things were made with the hearty goodwill of those who are now coming to ruin, in consequence of the debt, contracted for the purpose of making these things. This is all just. The load will come at last upon the right shoulders. Between Hythe and Sandgate, a village at about two miles from Hythe, I first saw the French coast. The chalk cliffs at Calais are as plain to the view as possible, and also the land, which they tell me is near Boulogne. Folkestone lies under a hill here, as Reigate does in Surrey, only here the sea is open to your right as you come along. The corn is very early here, and very fine, all cut, even the beans, and they will be ready to cart in a day or two. Folkestone is now a little place, probably a quarter part as big as it was formerly. Here is a church one hundred and twenty feet long and fifty feet wide. It is a sort of little cathedral. The churchyard has evidently been three times as large as it is now. Before I got into Folkestone I saw no less than eighty-four men, women and boys and girls, gleaning or leasing, in a field of about ten acres. The people all along here complain most bitterly of the change of times. 
the truth is that the squandered millions are gone the nation has now to suffer for this squandering the money served to silence some to make others bawl to cause the good to be oppressed to cause the bad to be exalted to crush the jacobins and what is the result what is the end the end is not yet come but as to the result thus far go ask the families of those farmers who after having for so many years threatened to shoot jacobins have in instances not a few shot themselves go ask the ghosts of pitt and of castlereagh what has thus far been the result go ask the hampshire farmer who not many months since actually blowed out his own brains with one of those very pistols which he had long carried in his yeomanry cavalry holsters to be ready to keep down the jacobins and radicals o oh god inscrutable are thy ways but thou art just and of thy justice what a complete proof have we in the case of these very martello towers they were erected to keep out the jacobin french lest they should come and assist the jacobin english the loyal people of this coast were fattened by the building of them pitt and his loyal sink ports waged interminable war against jacobins these very towers are now used to keep these loyal sink ports themselves in order these towers are now used to lodge men whose business it is to sally forth not upon jacobins but upon smugglers thus after having sucked up millions of the nation's money these loyal sink ports are squeezed again kept in order kept down by the very towers which they rejoice to see rise to keep down the jacobins dover monday september first evening i got here this evening about six o'clock having come to-day thirty-six miles but i must defer my remarks on the country between folkestone and this place a most interesting spot and well worthy of particular attention what place i shall date from after dover i am by no means certain but be it from what place it may the continuation of my journal shall be published in due course if the atlantic ocean could not cut off the communication between me and my readers a mere strip of water not much wider than an american river will hardly do it i am in real truth undecided as yet whether i shall go on to france or back to the wen i think i shall when i go out of this inn toss the bridle upon my horse's neck and let him decide for me i am sure he is more fit to decide on such a point than our ministers are to decide on any point connected with the happiness greatness and honour of this kingdom End of chapter 14